The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. Please open up your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians as we uh, continue our study entitled One Body through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote inspired by the Holy Spirit, which makes this for us. This is a letter from God to us because this is the words of our God, living and active and He is always accomplishing His will. He is always speaking to us through His Word. This morning, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. We're going to be looking at what it means to be baptized in Christ's name. And when you have found that, I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and holy Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray. Lord, that last song is our prayer. Lord, we ask you to help us fix our eyes on Jesus. Lord, right now, We want every single word spoken to point to Jesus, to lead us to the cross, to behold the glories of what you have done for us in Christ, for what you are doing in us in Christ, to our eternal destiny in Christ. Lord, may Christ be our hope, our everything today. Lord, we pray this in His name. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever tried to give instructions to one person through a different person? Have you ever tried that? This happens all the time in my house, and usually it happens because dad doesn't want to go up the stairs. And so I'm often telling my kids, and, and, and we have another rule too, so I mean, typically you say, well, just text them. Well, we don't allow devices upstairs at our house either. There's no cell phones, there's no computers, there's nothing. So either I can yell, which that doesn't usually work out well, or I can send an ambassador on my behalf 
I have five to choose from. So often I will tell one of them, hey, go tell your brother or go tell your sister to do this. Clean your room. Fill in the blank. Come here. You know, whatever it is. And they'll do it. And every now and then the messenger returns and nothing changes. Every now and then the messenger comes back and gets back in front of the TV or whatever they were doing downstairs, and I don't hear footsteps upstairs. Whatever I ask to get done is not getting done. And so I'll go to, who do you think I'm going to go to? I go to the messenger. Did you tell them what I told you to tell them? And yes. Okay. Did you tell them that I'm the one who said to do it? Oh. <laughs> and, and it's at that point that I don't know who to get mad at, you know? Because the only reason to do what you told them to do was because I'm the one who said to do it. It's the only reason. You know, Eden telling Lily, hey, clean your room. That doesn't usually go over too well. But when Eden says to Lily, dad said to clean your room, Well, church, that better happen. That's supposed to happen. See, authority needs to be legitimate. You can't just make up your own authority. One time, Nikki and I were spending a weekend in Atlanta. We like Atlanta. The Braves play in Atlanta. There's the Atlanta's in the South. Coca-Cola's in Atlanta. There's a lot of good things about Atlanta. And they have this subway system called the MARTA. And you, you ride it. It can take you anywhere you want to go, but it's also a little scary sometimes. And one time we were getting on the MARTA, and a homeless man had set up shop outside the gate, and he had one of the passes that scanned and would open the gate for you every time a new person would come up, and he, you just had to like give him a dollar. So somebody had donated a pass, and he was just collecting the cash for it. And, you know, we, we were so frightened that I just gave him the dollar. I was like, yeah, all right, man, I'm just going to keep going. But that is an example of illegitimate authority. See, this is important. Because you're not supposed to just obey any authority. That's not what we're called to do. If you do that, you're going to get yourself into trouble. You're going to get yourself taken advantage of. But the Bible calls us to submit to legitimate authority. And that's really important when we get to this section of 1 Corinthians. Because Paul here is going to make an appeal to this church. But I want you to notice that he's going out of his way to remind them that what he's instructing them to do does not come from his own authority as a person, but what he is instructing them to do is it comes from Christ. It is derived authority. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, I, Jesus sent me. This is Paul saying, hey, I'm not here on my own. I'm appealing to you by the name, by the authoritative name of the one that you say is your Lord. Paul does this in all of his letters. Look at verse 1. Pastor Josh led us through this a couple weeks ago. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing this letter as an apostle. 
I am writing this letter because Jesus has called me and he has placed his authority upon me as one of his apostles. Church, this is an important point because we all like to imagine that we're as individuals directly under the authority of Jesus with nothing in between. That there's nothing mediating his authority to us. But Jesus is always mediating his authority. At this stage in history, the church is first being formed and there are apostles still on the earth. And so the apostles had that authority. But we learn in Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18 that Jesus' plan is that he is going to hand the keys of his kingdom, the authority of his kingdom, to the church. So the authority of Jesus on this earth comes mediated through his church, all of us. And when I say church, I'm not saying the pastor. I, as the pastor, Pastor Josh, as a pastor, we have to submit ourselves to this same authority. Jesus commissions his church to bear his keys. And so often, listen to me, this is important. Often following Jesus means listening to the human voices that Jesus has sent to us. This appeal is necessary because here in verse 10, Paul is finally getting to the issue. If you've ever written anything, you know that often those who teach you how to write will tell you you need to have a thesis statement. People need to be able to read what you're writing and tell right off the bat, this is what this is about. That's a thesis statement. Verse 10 is the closest thing to a thesis statement that we're going to find in this letter. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This is why Paul's writing. There are divisions in the church, and Paul wants the church to understand that you cannot follow Jesus and be factional and be divisive, and be at enmity with other people in the body of Jesus. You can't do both of those things at the same time. The rest of this letter, all the chapters of it, Paul is coming back to this point again and again and again. So this morning, let's see how he introduces this topic. The first thing I want us to see in verse 10 is the Jesus-centered church. That's what he's describing. The Jesus-centered church. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. I am appealing to you, brothers. And that word brother is inclusive of brothers and sisters. It would have included all of the believers in the church. I am appealing to you, family. To all of you who have been adopted into the same Jesus family. And I'm appealing to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, we need to understand what that means. Name in the Bible is way more significant than when we give someone a name today. When we give someone a name today, it often doesn't have a meaning. You know, we just like the way it sounds. 
Or maybe the first letter is the same for all of our kids, so we have to find another one. Those are all fine. That's fine. But, but in the Bible, that's not the way it worked. A name meant someone's character. It was the essence of who he is. And so when Paul says, I appeal to you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying, I am appealing to you by Jesus' very character. This is who Jesus is. And so you need to listen. You remember back in the beginning of the Bible when God called Israel. God said, through Moses, he says, I am going to be your God, and you are going to be my people, and I am going to place my name upon you. What was, what was he saying? God was saying, my reputation is now tied to you. That's what God was doing. There's this show on Netflix called The Diplomat, and it's about an ambassador who goes to the United Kingdom uh, on behalf of the United States government. And it's fascinating to me because that position is, is someone who represents the government of the United States. And so what that individual does reflects upon the entire nation. That person is given authority to speak for our nation. And that's what's going on here. When we have the name of God upon us, God says, I am tying my character to you. Now here's the thing, church. And this is why God gets so angry at Israel when Israel is idolatrous, when Israel fails to, to show justice and mercy the way God calls them. Because God recognizes that His name is being debased, is being obscured. His glory is not being seen. And so God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a new covenant. And I'm going to connect my name to my eternal Son, Jesus Christ. And everyone that He saves, everyone that He redeems, everyone that He calls, they are going to enter into this covenant through Jesus. And so when we are baptized into His name, we are now joined. So God doesn't tie His name to a political nation anymore. In the new covenant, God ties his name exclusively to his son and everyone who is called to be in his son. Do you see how that changes? We are united to Christ by faith, so we are now tied to God's name, to his reputation. We just saw three baptisms. Every single time, Pastor Josh said, we baptize you now our brother or our sister in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You are joining this community of people that God has tied his reputation to through his Son, Jesus Christ. Baptism is like receiving your passport. You say, well, I'm an American citizen. And that's fine. You, you are. You're an American citizen if you're an American citizen, but, but you can't prove that until you receive your passport. Baptism is that physical sign that God has ordained through which we can physically, visibly, publicly say, I belong to Jesus. And Paul recognizes that. So when he says, I appeal to you, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's what he's saying. He's saying, 
Remember who Jesus is. Remember who you are. Remember that you belong to him. Remember that you no longer belong to yourself because everything I'm about to say to you depends upon you remembering that. You were baptized into his name. The implications of that are enormous. But for this letter, the implications here are are this. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Because, church, because all of you were united under the authority in the name of Jesus, there should be no divisions among you. We should be united. We should be one. This is Paul's message it's about unity. You know, somebody the other day said, my BFG is getting so enormous that we're like spilling out into the yard. I mean, literally, there's 50 people in my BFG, and I praise God for that. But we're about to have to make another two BFGs out of one. And somebody the other day said, so when are we going to split this BFG? When is this thing going to split? And I was like, hold on. We're Baptists. We can't use that language. BFGs do not split. BFGs multiply. So I want everybody here to understand that, okay? When we talk about things like that, when you're like at work at your cubicle and somebody's like, how's your church doing? Oh, great, we're about to split our BFG. You don't say that. That's not why we're doing it. We're dividing, multiplying. There's a lot of different ways, but we don't say split. But we read this, and I think maybe sometimes it sounds very kind of radical. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, the same judgment. And I think if you read this not carefully, you can conclude that it kind of sounds like God just wants us all to be robots. You know, like, everybody have the same mind, everybody think the same way. And I think it's important that we understand that 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 doesn't match what Paul's going to say even later in 1 Corinthians. That, That he's not wanting us to all be exactly alike. In fact, what makes this unity glorious is that we're all different. What makes this unity glorious is that all of us have different preferences is that all of us have different backgrounds. There are different races. There are different perspectives. There is all kinds of diversity. But because of the gospel, we are united because of Jesus. And that's what he's talking about. Jesus' name is our number one priority, meaning my name is not my number one priority. My reputation can't be my number one priority. I have to be willing to lay my reputation down if it means that Jesus' reputation gets exalted. In the words of John the Baptist, what did he say? I need to decrease so that Christ may increase church. When you have a church full of people, full of John the Baptist saying, I'm perfectly willing to decrease if it means Christ might increase. When you have that, you have a unified, God-glorifying church. And that's our goal. We want everything to center upon him. We want true unity. 
You want to know what that looks like when it comes to beliefs? Around here, we talk about beliefs in three categories. There are certain things, things that you heard confess in the baptistry this morning, there are certain things that everybody here better believe exactly the way the, the Lord has revealed them. You, you can't be a Christian if you don't. We believe in the Trinity. We believe in the exclusivity of Jesus. We believe in the substitutionary atonement. We believe that we are justified by faith alone. We believe in sanctification. We believe that we've received the Holy Spirit. We believe uh, that, that the gospel means that we will never lose our salvation. We, we believe that we are eternally saved. These are things that we will never compromise. We, we believe these things because this is number one. Every Christian believes these things. And there's a second level. In church, this is what makes us a church. There's a second level of things where there are Christians out there who don't agree with us on these things, and that's fine. We still call them brother and sister, and we love them. But we believe that we have to make decisions about certain things if we're going to function as a church. And so we have certain beliefs about what baptism is and who can receive it. Or how the church is supposed to be organized and governed. Those are second level things that everybody in our church should think pretty similarly about. Otherwise, you wouldn't have come here, right? You would have looked for another church. And then there are third level things. And these are things, church, that they're not unimportant. But the clarity of Scripture is not given so that we are, we're all going to think the same way about them. We don't all think exactly the same about politics. We don't all think the same exact thing about the, the, the roles of, of every person in society. There, there are all kinds of things that we're going to disagree with, even in the church. But we recognize that we're able to love each other in spite of those differences because we have the main thing in common. And so th this is important. Th this is something that's emphasized all over Scripture. Pastor Josh read this this morning, and I know when we begin by reading Scripture, we're always kind of busy and talking, and we don't get to put our mind to it often. And I want to repeat a part of it. He read from Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that begins your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One. There is one Jesus. Because of that, there is one body. We are one, church. We are one. I might embarrass you sometimes, but you still got to love me. Because of Jesus. That's what family does, right? Your kids embarrass you sometimes too, don't they? Well, we're family. We're brothers and sisters. I, and I want y'all to understand something. When, when Paul writes this, he's not writing this as some kind of distant ideal. This isn't Paul going, like, hopefully one day a church could possibly be like. This is what Paul expects the church to be. Like The fact that this is an exception and not the rule is a shameful reality. This should be the rule for every church in Jesus. And this is what we're pursuing at Ashland. It's what we're pursuing. But here's the second thing. This is the contrast. They're not the Jesus-centered church. They are the agenda-centered church. Verses 11 and 12. Let's look at these verses. For 
It has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Chloe was an early Christian who had a household. And in that household, there was probably extended family. There was probably servants. And, and, and Paul has heard this report from her people, her household, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, that there is contention, there is fighting, there is arguing, there is division. Verse 12, he elaborates. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So I want you to understand what's being said here. So Paul names four factions. These are all leaders in the church, obviously Christ being the leader of it all. And, and you know, maybe I think we're tempted to read that last one, I follow Christ, and we're like, well, at least there's some of them that got it right. But Paul's critiquing them too. Because I think that the way they're using that is that, is that they're being divisive with it. So you've got some people in the church who are breaking off into a faction, and they're like, we're of Paul. And there are some people who are like, we're of Apollos. And there are others who are like, we're of Peter. That's Cephas. We're, P we're with Peter. And then there are some who are like, we don't follow any leaders. We're with Jesus, right? And I think that's divisive too, because it, it's not, that's not what we're called to do. We are called to follow leaders who are following Jesus. And so Paul's critiquing it all. It's not that hard for me to imagine how something like this begins to happen in a church. I don't know if it is for you. I was in an associate role for, for a long time before I came here in a lead role. And sometimes in that associate role, very well-meaning people would compliment me. And, and I would hear things like this. I really like it when you preach. Or I really like the way you do things. And to be completely honest with you, who doesn't like hearing things like that? It's very flattering, you know, like, oh, you like it when I preach. <laughs> Someone appreciates me around here. You know, and, and honestly, like, it, it's, it's tempting. But listen, that kind of speech is also so dangerous because it puts the emphasis on the personality. And it begins to draw distinctions between people when we're all on the same team. We all have different roles. And here's the truth, church. Some of you are going to prefer hearing Joe preach. And some of you are going to prefer hearing Pastor Josh preach. And some of you are going to prefer hearing me preach. And that's fine. That's fine. Because we, God has made us all different. We all have different gifts. But none of those preferences are supposed to matter. Those preferences have to be sacrificed for the unity. And that's when it becomes dangerous is when we start exalting our preferences above what God is doing through Christ in the gospel. Here's what we have to realize. We are always going to have different preferences. Some of you are going to prefer things in this church, and you're going to have to just live with the fact that it's never going to happen. You know, I have this conversation with people all the time. When we start talking about preferences, I say this to people all the time. You've probably heard me say this to you in conversation. 
I'm the pastor here, and I don't even get all my preferences. Because it's not about me. We're not creating a church in the image of Casey. We are trying our best to make our church in the image of Jesus Christ. And our preferences are secondary to that process. And when we really study what was happening in Corinth, honestly, I don't think it's that different from what's happening today in America. What's happening in Corinth is that the values of the world are infiltrating the church. And I want you just to think about that. What are the values of the world? The values of the world have been around for a long time, but we really like celebrity. We really like fame. We really like visible power. We really like people with charisma. We really want someone who's charismatic to come and lead the way so that we can have a person, a tangible person that we can get behind and worship and celebrate. And that's been going on since the beginning. Do you remember 1 Samuel when Israel wanted a what? A king like all the other nations. Give us that figurehead. Give us that celebrity pastor. Give us that person who can lead us forward. It's the reason why we get so excited when we think a celebrity is a Christian. Kanye's a Christian? That doesn't end well, church. Chris Pratt? I mean, it's cool. But why do we get so excited about that? Why is that any more important than Natalie Johnson? Or Hunter Griffin? Brandon Johnson? It's not. A celebrity getting saved is no more significant than these three people we've baptized here. It makes no difference. We get excited about those things because we are buying into the world's definition. We think that fame will give greater credibility to the gospel, but church, we've got to recognize that Jesus didn't gain credibility through fame. Jesus gained credibility through the cross. You know who's great in the kingdom? It's not the people with the most money. It's not the people with the entourage of people serving them. You know who's great in the kingdom? It's those who are last. It's those who are willing to serve. It's those who say, it's not about me. It's all about Christ. In the church in Corinth, the division was based upon personalities Church, I want to remind you that it could just as easily be an agenda or an ideology. We can try to make our church about an agenda that is not Jesus. And if we do that, whatever agenda we pick will be a poor foundation for unity and it will eventually crumble. The only basis for true unity for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. It is the only one that works. There are some of you in here today who say, well, I think that you should parent your children like this. And there are others of you who think, well, I think you should parent your children like this. Some of you buy into this theory of parenting or this theory of parenting. Church, I've been around, I've been a parent for a long time now. I just want to tell you, there's a new parenting fad every other week. 
at the end of the day, you cannot make any of that kind of thing the basis for division or unity, one or the other in the church. If you go, well, I really like this style of music. I like this style of music. You want to tell Dan what style you really like? He'll be up there, up here at the end of the service. You just line up and tell him what songs you want next week. You know how long that list is going to be? I hope you are ready for like a 48-hour worship-a-thon next Sunday. Because the amount of preferences in this room when it comes to music is the same as the amount of people in the room. We are not here to serve anybody's preferences. We are here to glorify Christ. That's what it's about. And I think, church, I want to just speak to our context for a minute. It's a very unique thing God's done here. There was a church here for a lot of years called Buckner Baptist Church, and there are some of you here who have been so steady and so faithful who were a part of Buckner, and then there were a phase of people who came early in the Ashland Oldham County era, and you've been here since the beginning of planting, and then there are a lot of you who are new. And it would be easy to group that into factions. You say, well, we're the OGs, we're the Buckner people. That's not how it works. Or we've been here since the beginning. Who are all these new people coming in? Church, that's not how it works. We do not think about things like that because we recognize that every person here has just as much right to be here as anybody else because the ticket to get in is the blood of Jesus. And it was spilt for all of us equally. Preferences make poor foundations. Preferences are temporary. Preferences come and go. We have to build on the foundation of Jesus. Let's speak to one other issue. I think in our cultural context, there is a temptation to say that we're building on the foundation of Jesus. But really what we're doing is we're defining ourselves against all the things in the world that we hate and despise. And so there are churches right now that are gaining a ton of people because every single week they show up and they talk about how terrible the world is. This is happening, and that is happening, and this is happening. And you know what? When we do all that, you know what, what that makes us do? It makes us feel good because we're united and we agree. And so we're saying, amen, I can't believe all this transgenderism going on. Amen, I can't believe all these sexually unethical things that are happening, they're being promoted. And church, let me just say real quick, we will always speak for the truth about those matters when it comes. But we can't define ourselves based on what we're against. If we stand up here week after week and just rail against all of the terrible things happening in the world, I can promise you that that type of preaching is not going to advance you any closer to Christ-likeness. We will preach Christ. And when the time comes, when the Word leads us, we will identify those things and we will show you the perspective that Christ has for them. But we are not trying to build unity based on all the things that we hate. We are building unity on Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's the way it's got to be. But here's the last thing I want us to see. Verses 13 through 17. The unifying right. 
the unifying right. It's interesting. After all this, Paul spends the rest of this section talking about baptism. Verse 13. He has three rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, all of those questions are logically connected. Jesus was crucified for his church. Because Jesus was crucified for his church, the crucifixion unites us into one body. We enter that body by being baptized into his name. The act that unifies us publicly is the baptism. Christ wasn't divided. Christ is one. By having these divisions, we are parceling out Jesus. Paul wasn't crucified for us. Jesus was. When we put the focus on Christ, we we preserve the foundation for our unity. It's interesting that Paul brings up baptism here because we often minimize baptism. You know, you bring up baptism and often what we do is we immediately start undermining it. Well, it's just baptism. Baptism doesn't save. It's just a symbol. And what's interesting to me is that the Bible never speaks about baptism as just baptism. The Bible never undermines it. It never minimizes it. Paul doesn't do that. For Paul, baptism was really important. Over and over again, he's linking it to the crucifixion. In Romans 6, 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In Colossians 2, 12, he says that we were buried with him in baptism. Baptism is important because baptism actually does something. Baptism publicly places us in him, in the midst of the body. It is the physical demonstration of what we have already believed in our heart, but it is a physical demonstration that we are in Christ. It is the the receiving of your passport. We always can look back. When, When you're tempted, church, when you feel your heart going astray, look back and remember your baptism. Remember the declaration that Jesus is Lord. Remember that you have been buried with Christ. That you have been raised to walk in newness of life. Your baptism is a momentous moment in your life that you are to look back on for the rest of eternity. And Paul brings it up because he recognizes that it's unifying because everybody entered the body through the same means. We were baptized. Cultivating divisions is the equivalent of cutting up Christ's body and passing it out. Think about that. That's when he said, is Christ divided? That's what Paul's saying. The implication is grotesque. Jesus isn't divided. But you're making him divided. When we cultivate divisions, we are dividing what Christ has brought together. When we are cultivating divisions, we are undoing the gospel. We are undoing what Jesus died to bring about. When we've got to grasp the consequences of that. This is why every one of us as members of the body are responsible for preserving the unity of the church. 
Do you remember when you signed your covenant? When, when we came together, one of our new things is that we're all going to have a covenant that we commit to as members of the body of Christ so that we can look back on what it means to be a member of this church. And what, the first one, there's three commitments. The first one is, I will preserve, no, it's protect. I will protect the unity of the church. Meaning when you hear division, you don't have to call the pastors. You are authorized to say, I'm not going to listen to that. That's divisive. And that's the level that this is supposed to be working because you recognize how dangerous it is because you recognize that that division is an assault on what Jesus is doing here. And then in verses 14 through 16, and this is important, because I think you can read it in a way and think that Paul's minimizing baptism, but he's not minimizing baptism. When he talks about baptism here, he's simply saying, I'm really glad that you can't bring my name into this because I didn't baptize any of you. So look at what he says. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Paul's like, there were a couple I did baptize. So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then like, if, if, if Paul were writing this today, it would be really easy. Just select all, delete, put the cursor back, and, oh, I forgot about these other people. But Paul, I imagine if you found the original scroll of 1 Corinthians, there would be like a little arrow over to the side. Or Paul was writing this, and then he goes, oh, there were other people I baptized too. Verse 16, I forgot. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized. I'm just going to leave it open after this because maybe there were more. <laughs> you know, it's interesting to me that Paul the apostle, and well, let's get to 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Paul is going from place to place. He's preaching the gospel, and he says, I am not the one baptizing. Why? Because the church is the one who baptizes. Paul's preaching the gospel. People are believing the gospel. And when people believe the gospel, Paul is turning them over to the elders. And they are the ones who are baptizing. Because this is a church thing. And that's what Paul's saying here. I wasn't called to even baptize. I'm going from place to place. And I preach the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is why we say, when you heard Pastor Josh baptize this morning, he said, we baptize you in the name of the Father, our brother, our sister. And we use that language, church, because it's not about you were baptized by Pastor Josh. Or you were baptized by Pastor Casey. Or you were baptized by Billy Graham. It doesn't matter who baptized you. We say we because we are recognizing that it is the church who is doing the baptism. Did you know, church, that you baptized three people today? Pastor Josh was just the representative. But we as a church baptize three people. So when you go home and somebody says, you know, go to work Monday and say, how was church? Say, Great, three people were baptized. Or, or they baptized. Don't say they. We baptized three people. You participated in that. 
Verse 17, he's really going to unpack the meaning of this in the verses that follow. And so I'm not going to get too much into this this morning. But when he, when he talks about Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The issue here is not baptism or eloquence. The issue is that this church is isolating these things from the cross and using them for selfish ends. They are using eloquence and baptism as a way to distinguish themselves as somebody rather than as a way to point to Christ who died for everyone. So that's Paul's problem, and he's going to unpack that next week. So come back. I want to say this as we close this morning. There's a lot of new people coming to Ashland Community Church. Um, That's something we've been praying for, obviously. That's what we want. We want God to bring people here. We want God to save people here. We want God who, who, when there's people out there who are looking for a church, we want to be the ones saying, hey, you can come here and join a church that's trying to be faithful to Christ in every way. And that's what we want. That's what we're doing. But I want to just say this, and this is a good reminder if you've been here for a long time or whether you just got here, it's a good reminder. I want you to remember that we, it is never going to be our goal to cater to anyone's preferences here at this church. It's just not on our agenda. It's just not even out there for us as a top priority. We do not start with the question, what will make the most amount of people come here? Because there are things we can do that will bring a lot of people. I promise you, if we give away a used car, (laughs) right, the masses will come. We'll have to knock these walls down. There'll be so many people. That's not the question that we're starting with. The question that we start with is, what will honor Jesus Christ? What will put the attention on Him What will display the glories of the gospel for the people who come? Because here's what I know, church. I know that when we put the emphasis on that, that is going to draw the right people. That is a unique reality. That is something so much higher in quality than anything else we're ever going to get. Everybody else is marketing to us. Everybody else is trying to get us to sign up. Everybody else is trying to cater to our preferences. But we are here for one. We are here for Christ. And that's going to always be our goal. And so if you're new here, and that appeals to you, join us. If it doesn't, We might not be the right church for you, but that's who we're going to be. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have united us 